right, turn your Bibles to... Did that turn this on? Yeah. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I hope that you've... I hope that you've paid attention throughout the worship service and you're seeing the, the through line start to finish. If you remember our confession questions that we, we read at the beginning was about Christ's humiliation and Christ's exaltation. And all the way through the music, the prayer time, the scripture reading even, has, has pointed to that truth. And it's a gospel through line. It is communicating the gospel all the way through. And I'll tell you this, it's intentional. It has been intentional, right? We, we think and, and labor over uh, the song selection, uh, the scriptures that we're going to read. And, um, and so I hope that you don't miss that. Um, and I hope that that is a part of making your worship of God even more uh, meaningful. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, this is our last message in the book of Ephesians for the year of 2022. Uh, Next week we'll be having a Christmas message, and this is the last message in Ephesians chapter 5. Starting in January, we'll be picking up in Ephesians chapter 6 and finish out the book. But uh, we've been walking through this, and so far we've work through Ephesians chapter 5 and and come through the teaching, the practical teaching, the outworking teaching of the doctrine and theology that is mentioned in chapters 1 through 3. So when we come to chapter 4 and then come to chapter 5, we're seeing what the Spirit-filled life or being filled by the Spirit is carried out, how it it looks, what it it appears to be. And uh, as we get to verse 15, it says that we are to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And he gives a command in verse 18. He says, do not be drunk with wine. That's a command. Do not be drunk with wine. That's a put off. And then he gives the put on. The replacement of that is to be filled by the Spirit. In other words, this. Christians, believers, are not to be those that are drunk with wine, but they're to be those that are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to lay out the, the outworking of that control. He gives three products of what it looks like to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. He says that you sing. You're singing songs in your heart and to each other. You are thankful. You give thanks always for all things. How can I give thanks always for all things? Some of you have even gone through things this week that you think, it's been hard. I don't know how I can thank God for that. That's why this is talking about being controlled by the Spirit of God. Give thanks always for all things. And then the last one is submitting. Submitting yourselves one to another. And that's the opening into three different outworkings of relationships that we have in life that he begins to give us specific detail in. The first one is marriage relationship, husband-wife relationship. The second one follows over into chapter 6, which is parent-child relationship. And the third, as it had to do with the culture and who those uh, Ephesians were, uh, the Ephesian Christians were at that time that they lived in, it was slaves and masters. We'll explain that when we get to that text. But what we've been dealing with in the past two weeks, this is the third week, is the 
specifics given about the marriage relationship, husband and wife. We started off with talking about the illustration that is given in the text. Husbands and wives, and, and the illustration is between the uh, Christ and the church. He likens Christ to the husband. He likens the church to the wife. So we explained a little bit about that and, and dealt with the theology of the, of the picture of marriage that he likens it to. Last week, we decided to give specifically to the directions that he's given to wives. Real simple, two things, submission and respect. Submission and respect. Now, we did give the qualifiers there of, of things that you are the areas or the times where you do not submit to your husband, and this is likened to any relationship in the Christian life, male or female, where we are told to submit to things. But if they ask them, or if they ask us to sin, then we do not follow in that. We obey God rather than men in those occasions. So if a husband is asking a wife to do something that is unethical, to lie, to go along with something, to do something that is immoral in their intimate relationship, she does not submit to that. But we cannot escape the text when it says submit in everything. This is in all areas of life. But the idea then comes down when you get to verse 33, and he says that she should respect. We dealt with that all last week. So today, and finishing up this text, I want to speak specifically to the husbands, spirit-filled husbands. Now, last week I said this. I don't want you to just check out on this message like, like last week. I, I want you to uh, engage and listen. This is why this message is important this morning, even if you're not a husband. If you are a man, if you are a husband, this is, or if you're a future husband, this is important for you to know what the Bible uh, is calling you to. If you are a wife or a future wife, this is important for you to know what kind of husband you should be looking for or what you should uh, pray for or expect in your husband. And if you are neither one of those things, this is good for you to listen to because it is important in the culture that we live in today that you are aware of where our church stands counterculturally to what the Bible is teaching about this subject. So, uh, the opening statement here this morning that I read by John MacArthur says, Throughout history, the most dominant distortion of relationships, as we've been looking at, has been on the man's side. In most cultures of the ancient world, women were treated as little more than slaves or servants. And the practice is reflected in many parts of the world today. This is not something that I need to spend, I think, a whole great deal of time convincing, of, convincing you of. We can see it plainly. And even today, when you go into out other cultures, when you think of uh, the, the Middle East, Islamic culture, you think of Hindu culture, you think of many other cultures, and even those cultures of the ancient culture, you even go so far back at uh, two to three hundred years, it is the predominant thing that women really did not have a voice. Now, I talked a little bit about this last week, about how when you have the distortion on one side, a lot of times we sinfully react with the distortion on the other side. Therefore, with patriarchy and male dominance and chauvinism, the distortion of the man's side is a lot of times met with feminism, radical feminism, which is the distortion on the women's side. But what God is calling us to eat, neither. God is calling us to the biblical model that is given to us in Scripture. 
Sadly, however, I think that in where we sit today, in this modern day, we see many forms of this male dominance happens within church settings. Because of distortions of headship and submission. People pull those two words out, and a lot of times because, and I believe this, that the role behind the pulpit is for uh, the God-called, God-qualified man, that many men who I believe would say, I would say are unqualified will stand behind a pulpit and greatly distort this to put a great burden on women. And so it is very vital and it is important that we go to this text to examine it this closely to see this. As we did with the wives last week, we do this with the husbands this week to see what a biblical headship, a biblical role of a husband looks like. So let's read, uh, let's begin reading this morning at verse 22 and go to verse 33. It says in verse 22 of chapter 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless... Let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So real quickly, I'm going to make it simple this morning. First of all, the command in verses 25 to 27, the command. Uh, Who is the command to? Well, that's pretty easy to deduce, right? Sherlock, who is it? Who's it commanding of? It's husbands. Husbands, all right? Husbands, in verse 25, what is the command? Letter B, what, the, the what? It is to love your wives. Now, we do need to dig a little deeper in here to understand what this word love is speaking of. In the English translation of Scripture, there is the word love many times used in our New Testament. But in the Greek language, there are different terms used for what we have translated love. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going through what all of those mean, but I want to single in on what is used here. It is the word agapao. You're probably used to the root word of that, agape, or agape. And and that is the term used here. Every single time in this passage, the word love, loved, or a derivative of it, it is the exact same term, 
agapao. So it would deem, you'd, you'd think it necessary for us to know what that means. It is used five times, it is a verb, it is used 143 times in 110 verses in the New Testament. It is used to describe the attitude of God toward His Son in John 17, 26. It is the expression of love, love put to action. This love had its ultimate expression in the giving of the Son of God for fallen sinful man. It is therefore the fruit of His Spirit in us when we display agapao love. This is radically defined. In fact, men, I want you to write this down. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. You want to see a definition of what this love is. In fact, I'll say this. I've wrote these, I wrote verses 4 through 7 on a 3 by 5 card this week, and I've been working on it. I'm going to come back around to that, but you need to, you need to be so familiar with that passage if you care at all, and you should care, about fulfilling this command in your home. Love. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says agapao expresses the deep and constant love and interest of a perfect being towards an entirely unworthy objects, producing and fostering a reverential love in them towards the giver and a practical love towards those who are partakers of the same and a desire to help others to seek the giver. I wrote this down by Max Anders in the Holman New Testament Commentary. He said, when a husband loves his wife so completely, the wife need never fear submission. Let me say that again. When a husband loves his wife so completely, the wife need never fear submission. Stuart Scott is a uh, biblical counselor. He's sort of a pioneer uh, in the movie. He's taught at different seminaries, sort of uh, building up the biblical counseling department in those, those places. He has a ministry called 180 Ministries. He wrote a book uh, many years ago called An Exemplary Husband. In fact, I, I've got some handouts for you guys today, like I did the women last week. And they, it's, it's a, it's come, I'll say a little bit more about that, but it comes from that book. In the book An Exemplary Husband, he has a chapter on love, and he takes from the uh, biblical cues of defining that to formulate a definition of this. And I think I put that on this, uh, in the notes. I think Travis is going to put that on the, there. Here's the definition that he writes out of love. A selfless, enduring commitment of the will to care about and benefit another person by righteous, truthful, and compassionate thoughts, words, and actions. Mouthful? Yeah, a little bit. But I would encourage every single one of you men to write this down and memorize it. So whenever you ask yourself, am I loving my wife? You either go to 1 Corinthians 13 to check yourself or this definition comes up and it convicts you on how selfish you have been. It is a selfless, enduring commitment of the will to care about the benefit of another person and benefit another person by righteous, truthful, and compassionate thoughts, words, and actions. The world's definition of love is quite different. It's the opposite, in fact. It's object-oriented. A person is loved because of physical attractiveness, personality, wit, prestige, or some other such positive characteristic. In other words, the world loves those who it deems worthy of love. That is not Christ-like love. It is not Christ-like love. 
MacArthur said God's love is not of that sort. He loves because it is his nature to love that which he has created and because the objects of his love need to be loved, not because they are attractive or deserve his love. So what is, what's the command? What, it's to husbands. What is, what is it? That, what's the what of the command? It is love your wives. Next, how? How? If you need to wait on that to leave the definition up there a little longer, you can do that, Travis. How? Very simply, love sacrificially. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and what? Gave Himself for her. As you're doing that, I want to read to you Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8 for us to understand fully this. This, this concept, verse 4 says, Let each of you look not only for, our own, for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus. Guys, this is it. You are to love her like Christ loved the church. How did he carry that out? Philippians tells you, Let this mind be in you, which was his. Verse 6, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Get that. You may think, I'm the head of the home. I'm supposed to make the decisions. I'm supposed to be the one that's respected. It is lowering my mistake. Jesus was God, and He did not think that it was less of Him to come to you. Look at verse 7 but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or slave and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now... Man, I, I've already instructed you to write down 1 Corinthians 1-7 through to work on memorizing that. Write this passage down too. And you need to get this in your minds as well. Philippians 2, 4-8. through Because if I can get across any truth to you this, this morning, it's not, hey, love her in the best way possible. It's not, it's not any of these things. It's this. Treat her like Jesus treats you. It is displaying the gospel in your home. Love sacrificially. The world continually tells the man to be a macho, to defend himself, assert himself, bring attention to himself, and live totally for himself. But God tells the Christian man to give himself up for others especially for his wife, just as Christ gave himself up for the church. Many have this idea, well, the man goes out in his job to work and the woman does her jobs at home. I would challenge you a little bit on maybe your understanding of Titus 2 on that, but I'm not going to get into that this morning. Let me say this, every single bit of it is your responsibility, man. She is what? Your helper. It means this. When you come home and it's been a crazy day and she has not gotten the house clean, you don't sit there and say, what have you been doing all day? No, you pick up the broom 
and go sweeping yourself. Because you view it as your responsibility instead of hers. It means you get to the dishes and start washing them. Yes, I know you're exhausted. It does not matter. You love like Christ's love. You are humbled like Christ humbled himself. One wife rightly told her husband, Dear, I know that you are willing to die for me. You have told me that many times, but while you were waiting to die, would you fill in some of that time by helping me with the dishes? I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> See, we're, we're, we're real say, yeah, I'll, I'll step in front of a, a, a bus or I'll, I'll, I'll step in front of a bullet for my wife, but will you live for her? Will you live sacrificially for her? Now let's move to verse 26 and 27. Here's the why. The why. Verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, if you can stay with me, I'm going to use a couple of big words here, but stay with me because I want you to understand what we're talking about here. A lot of people will divorce this from the text because they think it's giving you ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and they don't quite understand what it means as far as your responsibility as a husband. Now, let me say this. In this passage... Is this ecclesiology? Is this doctrine of the church what he's saying in verses 26 and 27? 100% yes. Now, does God in his wisdom give us every bit about ecclesiology in this text? No. But what he is giving means that what he's saying is applying to your relationship as your wife. So let's look at it again with those lenses. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Husbands, this is your responsibility. Max Anders said, As a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, his love and care will have a sanctifying influence on the wife who will experience personal benefit and progress as a result. He is to sanctify. What is, what is, what, how do you do that? Say, so, wait a second, John. Are you saying it's my responsibility to, that my wife grows as a Christian? Yes and no. Ultimately, it is her responsibility that Christ is going to carry out in her life. Is it a form of your responsibility as well? That's what he just said. That's what he just said. Well, how do I do this? Okay, John 17. What did Jesus pray to God in the garden? He said, Father, sanctify them by the what? Truth. And then he defines it for us. Your word is truth. How can you help your wife in sanctification? Okay, I'll spell it out for you. <laughs> you. You guide her to God's word. You're teaching her God's word. You're helping her grow in God's word. This requires what? For you to know God's word. Let me ask you this, men. Are your wives... Closer to Christ because of you. Are they further along in their progress of sanctification because of you? Have you helped that? I can already hear the objections. John, I'm just not a studious type. I'm not telling you you have to be a theologian. I'm not telling you you have to be a theologian at all. God is telling you that you need to know His truth. You need to know His Word, and you need to lead your wife in that. 
Brian Chappell said, My role is to build up my wife, to enable her to sense fully and deeply her infinite worth to me and to her Savior. She cannot readily know of her worth to God if the husband he provides somehow diminishes her. Look at verse 27. Why? Why why does he need to sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word? Verse 27. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. In all of this, Paul communicates Christ's appreciation for the beauty of his bride. Chapel goes on to say this, Making wives question their beauty or encouraging them to be dowdy is one of the ways that some husbands exercise control in their marriages. But this is contrary to Christ's example. God intended us to be attractive to one another, and one way that we affirm his blessing as we build up one another is by affirming our spouse. Are you helping her? Are you encouraging her? Are you strengthening her? Does she have doubts and anxieties about herself because of you or in spite of you? Does, when she's feeling that weight of insecurity, are you one of the places that she can go to? Or are you one of the places that are fueling the doubts and insecurity? This brings us to point number two, the logic. What is the logic? Why all this? And I love love God. I love how God gives us this because we think like this. We think A plus B equals C. You know, we we put these things together and we say, all right, what's He gives us logic. Why? Because your wife is part of you. Look at the verse. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. He's like, guys, what is, what is the teaching, the basic teaching about marriage? When you get up there and you come together at the altar and the, 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 the preacher marries you, you, are, you become what, biblically? One flesh, right? It's a one flesh relationship. You're together. To mistreat your spouse, men, is to mistreat yourself. We would think that you were insane if you come in one day for like the men's breakfast and you said, man, this week I just got so sick and tired of this arm, I just took a knife out and I just chopped it off. I got rid of this arm. And you know what? This hand is bothering me so much, it might happen this week to this hand, so we better watch out. We think this guy needs to go to the loony bin. So, if we're thinking biblically, we should think of the same thing of the man who mistreats his wife. You are mistreating yourself. You love her like yourself. Verse 28 says, so, the word so, or in some translations, in the same manner, is hoyotos. It means likewise, after this manner, in the way that it was done, you do the same. Verse 29, he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh. You don't hate yourself. Guys, you don't hate yourself. You make sure that you eat. <laughs> you make sure that you get rest. You don't hate yourself. All right? For this, uh, he, says, he says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but does what to it? Does what to it? Nourishes and cherishes it. All right? So here's where we're going to hit pause again and look at this. Let's dive into this. Nourishes and cherishes her. 
Nourishes is the word ektrepho, the Greek preposition ek, which means out of, and trepho, which means feeds, brings up, nourish, to nourish. It means this in some usage of the New Testament, to bring into maturity. To nourish a wife is to provide for her needs, not just her physical needs, men. To give that which helps her grow and mature in favor with God and man. If I asked you, what are some of your wife's emotional needs? Would you even know how to answer? Would you have an idea of what that was? Cherishes is the Greek term thalpo. It means to keep warm, to cherish with tender care, to foster and manifest tender care. To cherish her is to use tender love and physical affection to give her warmth, comfort, protection, and security. Husbands, are you doing this? Are you caring for her? Is your touch tender? I'm going to be appropriate. appropriate. But men, you need to foster an atmosphere where every time you physically express affection for your wife, she's not thinking one thing or that you want one thing. And when you do that, that gives her a sense of security and safety. Chuck Swindoll said, A godly husband will help his wife feel fulfilled, grow toward maturity, and deepen her love for the Lord. He will tenderly and warmly affirm her through both emotional reassurance and physical affection. When she needs strength, he gives her strength. When she needs encouragement, he gives her encouragement. When she needs a hug, he gives her the hug. She needs someone to just hold her hand. He holds her hand. We need to stop taking our cues from secular culture, Hollywood, and television and get back to the biblical understanding of what it means to be a man. And that is not what the culture teaches, whether it's effeminate or whether it's macho. It is biblical to care warmly and affectionately for your wife. Jim Neuheiser said this, Peter states, and we talked about this men in the Family Shepherd's Breakfast about 1 Peter 3, 7, that you must live with your wife in an understanding way. Peter states that a husband should honor his wife. While you are the head of the family, she is your equal spiritually, a fellow heir of the grace of life, that Peter says. Treat her with respect as the husband of the virtuous woman trusts his wife in Proverbs 31. Isn't this humorous? I think it's humorous sometimes. All of us men want the Proverbs 31 wife, but we don't want to treat her like the Proverbs 31 husband. Look at Proverbs 31.11 sometime. He seeks her thoughts and opinions. Don't micromanage her, which I would sort of lean towards that would be abusive. Instead, give her great freedom in her realms of life, just as the husband in Proverbs 31. Trust the woman to run the household and do works of charity and run a small business. And this all comes down to verse 30. Look at this. For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. 
This hammers out again the truth. We are what? One with our spouse. We're one. Point number three covers verse 31. And I want to talk, I call this the standard. I didn't know exactly what to label this, but I called it the standard. Look what verse 31 says. For this reason, this is a scriptural quote. So this is a scripture quoting scripture here. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a quote of Genesis 2.24. Jesus quotes this in Matthew 19.5 and Mark 10.7. And Paul quotes it also in 1 Corinthians 6.16. It is a very emphasized point of scripture concerning the marriage relationship. Just in case there's, there's issues with in-laws, issues with other families. MacArthur said, In marriage, a new family has begun, and a relationship of the former families are to be severed as far as authority and responsibilities are concerned. Parents are always to be loved and cared for, but they are no longer to control the lives of their children once they are married. I'll say this. Number one, to... to either couples that have the in-law situation going on. You're one. You're one. And if one of your spouse is feeling threatened because of your relationship with your parents, you need to check that. You may need to get some counsel on that, but you need to listen to your, your spouse on that one. And number two, let me say this to parents. Parents. Because many of our parents in here have kids that are not ready to be married yet, but one day they will. And you love your children. And many of you are going to develop closer relationships with your children as they get older. Let me strongly encourage you, purpose in your heart right now, that whenever they do come to a marriage relationship, that you respect those areas of that relationship. And do not enforce your uh, your persons or your, your relationship upon that marriage. That's hard. I've, I'm not there. I've talked to some who have been there, and it's difficult because you love them. But respect the truth of God's Word here. Number four, the conclusion. Look at verse 32 and 33. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So live out this mystery. Letter, letter A, just quite simply, live out the mystery. And letter B, love your wife. Look at verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. I said this to the wives last week. I said you got two responsibilities. If we break it down, simplify it, make it simple. Two responsibilities. Submit, respect. Men, if I was to make it simple and break it down to just... The bare bones, two responsibilities for you. Love her and wash her with the word. Lead her to Christ. Become a student of the word. I wanna, uh, I'm going to do things a little bit backwards. The last thing I would do would give you the implementation. I'm going to give that to you now, give you something to do, and then I want to close with two illustrations. Uh, on the table back there, I have an essay form, a put-off, put-on list for the men. In fact, if there's some left over, I would encourage anybody to take it because it's good for personal growth and sanctification. It deals with different areas 
and it gives you one side of the list of what are the thoughts and attitudes that you need to put off, what thoughts, biblical thoughts and attitudes you would replace those with. They're, they cover everything from pride, fear, uh, different aspects that are in the relationship. Pick one of those up. One thing that I would encourage you both to do, last week I recommended the book An Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. Man, I know that a lot of you have gotten the book Complete Husband by Lou Priolo. That book's, that book's good. There's a, the, if, if you wanted to get The Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott, you could pick that up. But there's a podcast called Care for Souls Podcast. I want you to write that down. Care for Souls Podcast. It is by a pastor, Adam, Adam Tyson and, pastor, and, and Stuart Scott. They sit down and have conversations. What they do is they go, each episode, they go, they cover one chapter of the Exemplary Husband book, and then the next episode they cover one chapter of the Excellent Wife book. And I would think that would be a great exercise if you two would read those books together, like together on your own time, and then come together, listen to the episode each week as as you go along with it, and have discussions about what you're learning. Men also remember the scriptures, Philippians 2, 4 through 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. I thought about several personal illustrations that I could give you of sort of the trial and error that I've learned in some of these areas through our marriage. But as I was reading and studying this, I heard two two stories. One story I've heard several times, and I'm going to play that in just a minute. But um, one story was of Professor Wayne Grudem. Now, some of you probably heard of Wayne Grudem. He's uh, wrote some uh, several uh, solid, good works. Uh, systematic theology is probably his his magnum opus, his signature work. And uh, uh, he taught at a seminary in the uh, Northwest, I think. Uh, I can't remember where it was actually, but he was he he had taught at this seminary for twenty years. In fact, the person who wrote it said it was like an all star team of professors at the seminary because you had you had. Uh, at the same, on the same staff, you had uh, Dwayne Grudem, you had a guy named Douglas Moo, who also has wrote many commentary, theological books and commentaries, and um, D.A. Carson. They all worked together. They were on the same staff. So it was like an all-star team there at the seminary. He had been there 20 years. He had really, really built up a reputation, built up a career there that not only honored God, but has really enriched the church. His wife, however, suffered from an autoimmune disease called fibromyalgia. And for years and years, she struggled in the climate that just with pain, they, they'd sent her, gone to many, many clinics and those types of things. And it really bothered uh, Professor Groom. And he wished he could have done something different for his wife. Well, a friend of theirs who lived in Phoenix, Arizona, invited them down for a trip. So they took some time away from the seminary and they both went to. Phoenix to spend some time there with those friends and the climate really had an effect on his wife. For the first time in 20 years they were able to go bicycle riding together. They absolutely enjoyed it. Without really speaking about it and talking about it very in depth, they went back and and Wayne began to stir in his heart. Oh, my wife was so happy with the things that she could do because she felt better. He said, if only there was a seminary in that area that I could go teach at. And then somebody, he was talking about it to somebody and he found out that there was a seminary there, so he sent them a resume, and they jumped at the chance, and they said, we'd love to have you come teach. So he sat down and talked with his wife about it, 
And he said, I'd like to give up. She says, you're going to give up all of this? Your career, everything you've built, your friendships? He said, yeah, but you'd benefit so greatly your health if we move there. And watch what happened. (laughs) She didn't want to do it. She knew it would be beneficial to her, but she loved her husband that she didn't want to do it because she knew what he'd be giving up. And he said, no, I love you. This will be beneficial for you. (laughs) So their relationship sort of, you know, that submission was coming into play and they were going back and forth. And she said, you know what? God has called me to submit to you. And if this is what you'd like to do for our family, I'll follow you. But I don't want you to give up what you've built your entire life for. And so they moved. And Dr. Grudem has experienced a wonderful ministry there in Arizona. And her health has done well. The other illustration that I wanted to give you, I'm going to play a short clip here. You can get that ready, Travis. I've heard this story many times as I've listened to biblical counselors do workshops on this. You've never heard of this man before. His name's Robertson McQuilkin. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. In 1990, he resigned prematurely because his wife, Muriel, of over 40 years, was dealing with an Alzheimer's diagnosis that had gotten increasingly worse. In fact, it was said that there were, Muriel got to the point where she, she didn't want to be alone with him because she was so frightened. So he would go to the seminary, go to the college, he'd go to his office, and she'd follow him there. And everywhere he went, she followed. He was the only safe place she felt with what was going on with her memory. And he began to notice that as they got home at evening, she'd take off her shoes and her feet would be blistered, sometimes bleeding from always following him and what he did with his schedule. And it broke his heart. So he resigned to take care of his wife. I want to play this clip, if you can have the volume ready to Travis, because this exemplifies, I think, for me, the type of love a husband has for his wife. Travis. I haven't... I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, She seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, Till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. 
But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing. She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. If after 40 years, my love for my spouse looks like that, I'll be content. Let's pray. God, forgive us as men for so many times being selfish and self-centered. We're not expressing the humility of our dear Savior. For the precious gift he's given us in our wives. Father, I pray that you'll change the hearts of us today. As we think about what you gave, the death of the cross, you humbled yourself, did not consider it robbery. We pray that our men can have such a cross-like love for their families. We love you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name.